0: From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. <music> I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Ron Elving on the week in politics, courtroom developments, and a special counsel report. How might each affect the 2024 election? Also, the latest on Israel and Hamas. Israeli forces might be preparing to push farther into Gaza. An economist who says the Chiefs and 49ers won't be the only winners or losers of the Super Bowl.
1: The people that love shrimp are lucky and the guys that just have to have that burger, they're gonna pay a little bit more.
0: What about the price of Chex Mix? And then Vim Vendor's new film on the everyday details of life for a man who helps keep Tokyo clean, Perfect Days. First, we have our newscast. It's Saturday, February 10, 2024.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. The White House is pushing back against the part of the Justice Department report on President Biden's handling of classified documents that described him as an elderly man with a poor memory. And Pierce Osma College reports of Vice President Kamala Harris is describing the comments as politically motivated.
3: Harris said as a former prosecutor, she found the comments made by this prosecutor, quote, inaccurate and inappropriate. The vice president also pointed out Biden sat down for an in-person interview with the special counsel's office just a day after Hamas attacked Israel as he was dealing with an international crisis.
4: So the way that the president's demeanor in that report was characterized could not be more wrong on the facts and clearly
3: politically motivated. This comes as the White House seeks to downplay concerns about the president's age that have been magnified by the report. Asma Khalid, NPR News. Following
2: the collapse of that border security deal that would have unlocked aid to Ukraine and Israel, senators are working this weekend on a more than $90 billion aid package. They advanced the measure last night and it appears on track toward a final vote. However, its fate is uncertain in the House. The spokesman for the U.N. Secretary General Stefan Tjarik says the U.N. is worried about the fate of civilians in the southern Gaza city of Rafah, where Israel's planning to go after Hamas militants.
1: The Office of the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs say the unprecedented density of Rafah's population make it nearly impossible. To protect civilians. And
2: Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has asked the military to plan for the evacuation of hundreds of thousands of people ahead of a ground invasion. He says Rafah is Hamas's last remaining stronghold. Many Palestinians are crammed into tent cities after fleeing to avoid fighting elsewhere in Gaza. The U.S. has warned that an offensive in Gaza without a plan for the civilian population would lead to disaster. The credit rating agency Moody's has downgraded Israel's credit rating. NPR's Ader Peralta reports the agency cited the economic damage caused by the war against Hamas.
5: In a note explaining its decision, Moody's investor services said it does not see an end in sight to Israel's war against Hamas. The agency noted that even if the fighting diminishes, it also doesn't see a long-term plan that would, quote, fully restore and eventually strengthen security for Israel. Israel launched a ground invasion of Gaza after a Hamas attack killed some 1,200 people in Israel. Israeli bombardment followed, killing 27 thousand Palestinians, according to Gaza's health ministry. Israel is spending millions on the war, and it has also called up hundreds of thousands of reservists, leaving a hole in the country's workforce. In a statement, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the credit rating will go back up as soon as Israel wins the war. Pralta, NPR News, Tel Aviv.
2: And from Washington, this is NPR News.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Boston's police department is struggling to test rape kits in a state-mandated 30-day window. An analysis by the Boston Globe found that the Boston Police Crime Laboratory did not test half its rape kits by the deadline last fiscal year. A police spokesperson told the Globe it currently takes an average of 52 days to fully process a kit. The department's working to reduce that turnaround time. State officials are investigating the conditions at Worcester Housing Authority properties. The Telegram and Gazette reports that workers have uncovered asbestos, black mold, raw sewage, and other hazards in residential housing units. A Worcester Housing Authority spokesperson strongly disagreed with the claims. The Massachusetts Senate is planning to honor one of the state's most famous abolitionists. Members will unveil a bust of Frederick Douglass in the Senate chamber during a ceremony next week. It is the first bust to be added to the Senate chamber since 1898 and the first state commissioned bust of a black person in the State House. It's 36 degrees in Boston, mostly sunny today, with highest in the low 60s. This is
7: WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org.
6: We will get you right to Weekend Edition Saturday 1st. Just a quick reminder that it is that time of year. It's time for you to support WBUR and choose the perfect gift from Winston Flowers for Valentine's Day. You can do that by going to WBUR.org or you can call 1-800-909-9287.
8: Jay Clayton's with me in the studio. Good morning, Sharon. Good morning to you and thanks for joining WBUR. are this morning and being with us we have a tradition here in the days leading up to valentine's day that we've had for 20 25 years maybe with winston flowers it's an opportunity for you to send your valentine these beautiful winston flowers and If you go to our website, wbur.org, you'll know what we mean when we say these beautiful Winston flowers, because they really are spectacular. And when you do that through us, you'll also be helping us to bring you weekend edition and everything else that you get from WBUR. So it's a really great value. We can send the flowers anywhere in New England, but Valentine's Day is right around the corner. So this is the moment to spend just two or three minutes taking a look at the four choices at wbur.org choosing yours, and we'll take care of the rest.
6: And the number again, 1-800-909-9287. You can also go to WBUR.org. As Jay pointed out, you can go to the website to look at the flowers, but we're lucky enough to have some of these flowers right here in the studio with us. And uh, we can attest they are truly gorgeous. And, you know, this is just a its a really nice opportunity for you to do something special, for someone who's special for you, to you, and also for WBUR at the same time. Um, Fundraiser's a really big part of our funding every year, and that is why so many thousands of listeners choose to send their Valentine's gift through WBUR. It's a way that uh, your contribution works to keep our journalism strong while also giving someone special some gorgeous Winston
8: flowers for Valentine's Day. You know, Sharon, there is a difference between putting flowers in a in a vase or, or a vase, if you will, whichever you want to go there. A <laughs> vase. 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 Says me. Okay. Vase, says everyone else. That's right. And, you know, there's a difference between that and floral design. I can't do it, but I recognize it when I see it. And it is Winston flowers. And that's really what you're doing. You're sending a work of art to your Valentine, whomever that may be. And these flowers can be delivered anywhere in New England for Valentine's Day. Just get your order in this morning. The number is 1-800-909-9287. Or, of course, you can take a look at the choices and choose the one that's perfect for you and for your Valentine at our website, wbur.org.
6: Thank you very much. Once again, one 800 909-9287 or WBUR.org.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for being with us. President Biden began the week lashing out at Republican dysfunction in Congress. An appeals court then rejected former President Trump's argument he should have total immunity. But this weekend, the president's on the defensive after a special counsel questioned his memory and alertness. And NPR's Ron Elvin joins us. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. Is it unusual for a special counsel to issue a nearly 400-page report concluding there are no grounds to prosecute a case, but then add comments about the mental acuity of the person whose conduct they investigated?
1: is it unusual yes but in this political era we're living through so many things are happening that are literally unprecedented scott we've all come to take unusual in stride uh, what we have here is a lot like what we saw six years ago when james comey declined to prosecute hillary clinton for her emails but gave her a tongue lashing about them nonetheless and now we have another republican lawyer a one-time trump appointee tapped by biden's justice department in an effort to fund, fend off accusations of partisanship or prejudice. And could it be this special counsel was feeling some heat as he prepared to announce his decision not to charge Biden with crimes? To a layman's eye here, and I'm not a lawyer, but it appears the prosecutor is disappointing half the country by not indicting the current president, but also angering many of the current president's supporters by throwing in these digs and even bringing in the death of Biden's son, strongly implying that Biden's no longer up to the job physically, especially with regard to mental acuity, sounding somehow as though this special prosecutor was making an ad for the campaign, and to some degree... This actually has rallied Democrats around their guy.
0: Donald Trump has been criminally indicted for mishandling classified materials. How is it that Donald Trump can confuse Speaker Pelosi with Nikki Haley? He can call Viktor Orban, who's the president of Hungary, the president of Turkey. He can be ordered to pay a court judgment of $83.3 million and not seem to suffer in the polls.
1: Those gaps have been noted. Uh, They don't seem to make a big difference in the polls. Uh, Possibly Americans are not all that tuned in to who is the leader of Hungary. Uh, They may not actually uh, have heard or seen many of these remarks. As to its effect on Trump, I think it has limited his appeal to some people who might otherwise be supporting him. And it has cost him some big donors, some people who have walked away. But he continues to do well among small donors. And that points to a larger reality, the loyalty of his hardcore base. For them, it seems no negative story matters. He has sold his legions his line, quote, it's not me thereafter, it's you. And maybe it was not that difficult to do that. Maybe his supporters were predisposed to believe that argument. They want to believe what they hear from Trump. They want to buy into the reality that he is selling. And he continues to persuade them to go with that belief rather than with anything else they hear.
0: mentioned the appeals court ruling at the top. The Supreme Court heard a Trump case this week. I've learned from the great Nina Totenberg not to assume how the Supreme Court will rule, but you were part of NPR's live coverage, Ron. What did you hear that you found might be telling about their ruling to come? Well,
1: I have learned from Nina Totenberg as well. And one notable question was missing. None of the nine justices asked a question about Trump engaging in insurrection. Now, if there were any real chance of them affirming the Colorado Supreme Court and throwing Trump off the ballot in that state or elsewhere, you would think they would have spent more time on that rather large elephant in the room. But it was not a focus of the proceeding. The Supreme Court here looks most likely to reverse the Colorado Court. There was a lot of chatter about this case and that case and things that happened in the 1800s. The key point was that even the Democratic appointees on the court, such as Justice Lana Kagan, had trouble imagining a world in which one state, in this case Colorado, could determine, if only in theory, the ballot eligibility of a presidential candidate, and that would spread to all 50 states. Sounds pretty national she said, and the court did not seem ready to do that. Ron Elvin, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott.
0: Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has ordered the Israeli military to prepare to evacuate the city of Rafa. It's the latest move indicating Israel may soon move ground forces into the very southern end of Gaza. Cities crowded with hundreds of thousands of people who have fled the fighting elsewhere in the territory. And Sadil Adil El-Shalchi joins us now from Tel Aviv. Adil, thanks for being with us.
9: Good morning. What more do
0: we know about this possible ground invasion?
9: Yeah, so yesterday, Prime Minister Netanyahu's office said that it was impossible to get rid of Hamas without sending ground troops into Rafah. There are about 1.5 million Palestinians crammed in Rafah at the moment, and aid agencies are warning that the existing humanitarian crisis could get even worse. Netanyahu asked for an evacuation plan for all these civilians, but it's unclear where people would go. And there's been an uptick in strikes on Rafah this past week. We know of at least three, including one that killed 16 people on Thursday.
0: A deal wouldn't uh, a ground invasion, seem to defy the warnings President Biden and his aides have given Israel this week.
9: Yeah, exactly. President Biden has been a popular figure in Israel so far for showing strong support for the war. But just this week, he told reporters that he found the Israeli operation, quote, over the top. And speaking to NPR, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield said a military operation in the Rafah area cannot proceed and that it would make the humanitarian emergency dramatically worse. Now, all of this, of course, is happening while mediated negotiations between Hamas and Israel are going on. Hamas wants a ceasefire that would see an end to the war and a withdrawal of Israeli troops from Gaza. But Netanyahu responded by calling Hamas's proposal ludicrous. And he's still under enormous pressure to bring the hostages home. So it's all still playing out.
0: Adil, what are Israelis with whom you've been able to speak in Tel Aviv uh, in the past few days saying about the war now?
9: Yeah, so the city may seem like it's business as usual. Restaurants are full, people are out and about, but there is a tension in the air. And Israelis tell me that everyone is talking about the war all the time. I walked through a market earlier this week, and vendors were selling children's T-shirts with anti-Hamas logos on the front. Restaurants and other stores have posters of hostages with the words, bring them home. The families of the hostages hold nearly daily gatherings in the center of Tel Aviv. And later today, there's actually going to be a weekly protest that calls for the end to the war.
0: And I know you've also been speaking with Palestinian citizens uh, of Israel. What what do they tell you?
9: Palestinian citizens of Israel make up about 2 million people of the population of Israel. And in the Yafa neighborhood of Tel Aviv, which is majority Arab, people here have strong ties to Gaza. Unlike Tel Aviv proper, though, Yafa is eerily quiet. I've spoken to many Palestinians who say they're afraid to even express grief for loved ones they've lost in Gaza because they think Israeli authorities may take it as an expression of solidarity with Hamas. Shop owners say they've lost Jewish customers. Human rights activists here also say that there is a security clampdown on Palestinians. Many are afraid of getting arrested for posting anything on social media that shows sympathy with Gaza. And several university students have been arrested for being vocal against the war. You know, I even reached out to a number of spiritual leaders in the city to get a sense of what people are telling them. And they all refused to talk to me.
0: And Pierre Hadil Al-Chalchi in Tel Aviv. Hadil, thanks so much for being with us.
9: Thank you, Scott.
0: Valentine's Day is next Wednesday, and I'm getting my wife and daughters the gift of hearing aids. For me. Our family's tired of asking, please pass the broccoli, only for me to chime back, sure, we can play Monopoly. I'm told it's been like living with a defective smart speaker. Our daughters ask, can we stop at Trader Joe's? And I say, why do you want hosen?" I've had hearing loss for a while, probably exacerbated by covering wars where the percussive thump of artillery fire walloped my ears. And I'm not the only person to resist doing something about it. The National Institute for Deafness and Other Communication Disorders estimates that only 16% of those between 20 and 69 years of age who would benefit from hearing aids have ever used them. Hearing aids can cost thousands of dollars, but I confess The main reason I refused to get fitted for them was fear. People would glimpse hearing aids curled around my ears like barnacles on a shipwreck and regard me as aged and frail. But just about the coolest person I know has hearing aids, Scott Simons, no relation, though we enjoy any confusion, is on America's Got Talent, sings the Paw Patrol theme song, has a rock band, and is barely in his 40s. He's had hearing aids since he was 18 scary and humbling to have to get hearing aids, Scott told us, especially as a musician. I don't want people to doubt my talent or ideas because they think I can't hear. But isn't it more embarrassing to have to guess how to answer something you didn't fully hear? I don't know why glasses aren't embarrassing for people, but hearing aids are. The World Health Organization estimates a fifth of the world's population will have some form of hearing loss in their lives. That's not just those of us who grew up listening to Iron Butterfly and the Rolling Stones. I've learned that a lot of people I admire have hearing aids I've never even noticed. Audio technology has become so sleek. My wife and I flipped through color swatches to choose my hearing aids. She sensed exactly what to say to ease my embarrassment when she saw one of the slightly shiny gold finish. Look, darling, she said, champagne. It's Valentine's Day. I'm... Glad to know I will hear a lot more from my wife in the years to come. And NPR offers something extra for you in your inbox. In fact, it's my weekly newsletter thoughts, news, This week, maybe even some curbed enthusiasm. No paywall, no price. We think you'll like it. You can sign up at npr.org slash Scott Simon Newsletter. All one word. And you're listening to NPR News.
5: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Mom, building client relationships one transaction at a time. Learn more at DavisMom.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M, and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month, new benefits for 2024.
6: BlueCrossMA.com go. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. With me in the studio is Jay Clayton, and we are taking a brief moment during Weekend Edition to remind you that Valentine's Day is indeed coming right up, and you have a great opportunity to support WBUR and choose A great gift from Winston Flowers for Valentine's Day. What you do is you go to WBUR.org or you call 1-800-909-9287 to order these gorgeous Winston Flowers for somebody special.
8: Yeah, Sharon, I was just thinking about uh, Scott Simon's essay there that Mm. we just heard talking about how his wife you know, gave him comfort and eased his embarrassment about transitioning to hearing aids. And if you've got someone in your life that does those things for you, regardless of the particular situation, maybe you want to send some flowers to them for Valentine's Day. And you can do that. You can send really stunning Winston flowers from WBUR. And when you do send them through us, the nice thing too is that it really makes a difference for us because that becomes some of the money that brings you weekend edition and brings you morning edition and all things considered and everything between and beyond on the air, online, at City Space, you know, all the different ways that you connect with WBUR. The root of it all is listener support. And that is why thousands, literally thousands tens of thousands at this point of listeners over time have stepped up to participate in WBUR during this brief little fundraiser in the days leading up to Valentine's Day because, you you know, you're probably going to do something anyway. And this way you can do something that has double meaning. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. 1-800-909-9287. And of course, you know, you can check out the choices and choose the one that's perfect for you and for your Valentine at our website. It's wbur.org.
6: And, you know, one of the reasons sometimes that someone is so special to you is that you share values. And uh, I have heard so many stories over the years of people saying that when they received flowers fr- that were a gift via WBUR for Valentine's Day, it had that special oomph to it because whoever gave them the flowers and they themselves Value WBUR. They value the journalism. They value the stories. They value the rigorous reporting and all the things that you get through WBUR. And so it is a really fantastic opportunity for you to give somebody, you know, a Valentine's gift that carries that extra meaning and really supports WBUR. The way you do that is to call 1 800 909 9287 or go to WBUR.org. Thank you so much. Once again, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org.
2: I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. The U.S. is warning Israel that an offensive in the southern Gaza city of Rafah would be a disaster. Israel says Rafah is the last remaining stronghold of Hamas in Gaza. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has asked the military to plan for an evacuation of civilians. Federal safety investigators are looking into a fiery crash of a private passenger jet in Florida. The NTSB says a crash investigation team arrived on the scene within hours after the plane attempted an emergency landing on an interstate highway. Two people were killed in the crash. And there are no reported injuries or major damage from separate earthquakes yesterday that shook both Los Angeles and the Big Island of Hawaii. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
10: Support for NPR comes from this station and from FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds working to maximize the impact of charitable giving and to create customized philanthropic solutions. Learn more at fjc.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. More than 100 million people in the United States are expected to watch the Super Bowl tomorrow. Some will watch for the football, some for the commercials, some for the halftime show. Some to look for Taylor Swift in the stands. Hint, look for B.J. Lederman, who does our theme music. She's probably sitting next to him. It is a safe bet. Everyone will reach for chips and dips or something. So here's NPR's chief economics correspondent, Scott Horsley, with this year's Food Tab.
11: When it comes to Super Bowl snacking, there is a definite home field advantage. Grocery prices have risen much more slowly than restaurant prices over the last year, so it's no wonder most people will watch the game at home or maybe a friend's house. A lot of them will still order takeout, though, and much of the time that means pizza and possibly a side order of chicken wings.
12: That is far and away. Our biggest sales day of the year, every single year.
11: Mark Schechter is the owner of Square Pie Guys Pizza in San Francisco, home of the 49ers. He expects to go through a couple thousand pounds of mozzarella cheese this weekend and a whole lot of chicken wings. He and his crew started battering wings on Thursday, but their planning began months earlier.
12: We start talking to our meat vendor kind of over the summer and ask them to freeze pallets of wings or or at least pre-purchase for us at a certain agreed-upon price. We were trying very early on to lock in a lower price.
11: Luckily for Schechter and other chicken fans, wings are plentiful, and prices are down for the second year in a row. Beef prices, on the other hand, are still climbing, so Chiefs fans may have to pay more for a Kansas City strip or barbecued brisket. Nevertheless, Gates Barbecue in Kansas City expects to do nearly double its normal takeout business this weekend.
12: Because there's so many people that are coming in from out of town for friends and family. They watch the game. The ones that we capture are the ones that have those big screen TV and throwing all the parties. So we're very much a part of that.
11: Arzia Gates' family has been serving hickory smoked barbecue in Kansas City for almost eight decades.
12: We use three stages. So it gives you the, the tenderness of the meat. It gives you the juiciness from the grease that falls from one stage to the next. And then we get that smoky flavor throughout.
11: Whether ordering in or cooking at home, the average Super Bowl fan is expected to spend about $43 on food and drinks this Sunday. That's 23 percent more than last year. Joan Driggs, who's with the market research firm Circana, says the Super Bowl is one of those occasions when you want to leave it all on the field, or at least on the dinner table.
13: You're not going to hold back. It's a celebration.
10: You're going to do what you want to do. Maybe it's your tradition. Maybe you're adding a little something to the mix to spice it up, but people are going to go all in.
11: And while grocery prices are still high, they haven't gone up much in the last year, just 1.3% overall. Some foods have actually gotten cheaper. Economist Michael Swanson, who's with Wells Fargo, says shrimp, like chicken wings, is a relative bargain this year.
1: Some people are getting lucky this year. The people that love shrimp are lucky, and the guys that just have to have that burger, they're going to pay a little bit more.
11: Guacamole and beer prices have stayed pretty flat over the last year. This is one case where flat and beer is actually a good thing. But prices are still climbing for things like chips and dip, the kind of packaged goods you find in the center of the supermarket. Swanson says since the beginning of the pandemic, soda pop has seen some of the biggest price increases, which is partly the result of costly aluminum cans.
1: If you want to have the convenience of a 12-ounce aluminum can, you're going to pay a real premium for it. You might want to think about those two-liter bottles with some ice and some cups. They really save you a lot of money.
11: While savvy shoppers may try to save on some items, Swanson expects a lot of people to splurge this Super Bowl. They've got money in their pockets since wages have risen faster than food prices this past year. And there are 2.9 million more jobs. For
1: all the issues that we have, and they're real issues, people have to appreciate the fact that it's going to be a blowout Super Bowl because more people employed, more money than ever had before. And most people, when they have a job, they're going to spend money.
11: So, whether you're serving up pizza and wings like Mark Schechter, ribs and brisket like Arzea Gates, or just ripping open a bag of chips in front of the television, you might think of this as a super opportunity to eat, drink, and celebrate, no matter which team you're rooting for.
12: Everyone have fun, basically, and go Niners. Go Chiefs and be a prosperous weekend for us all.
11: Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington.
12: They have nothing to say about pleasure, either in general or in the particular, when it is a question of definition.
11: That's
0: Luke Ferritor, one of three students who won a competition to decode a 2,000-year-old papyrus scroll from the ancient city of Herculaneum. It's part of a philosophical treatise about the nature of pleasure. Or maybe more of an ancient blog post where the writers trying to take down a group of other writers. Sound familiar?
12: For we do not refrain from questioning some things, but understanding and remembering others. And may it be evident to us to say true things, as they might have often appeared evident.
0: The scroll was one of hundreds carbonized by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in the year AD 79. When archaeologists found them in the 18th century, the scrolls crumbled when they were unrolled. Recently, researchers learned how to peek inside the scrolls without destroying them. University of Kentucky Professor Brent Seals co-founded the competition, the Vesuvius Challenge, and he joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much, Scott. What did you have to do to read the text?
14: Well, we've been working on virtual unwrapping for a couple of decades now, and in 2015 we had a breakthrough where we were able to read a scroll from the Dead Sea Scroll Collection, actually from En Gedi, and it showed the power of virtual unwrapping. But Herculaneum has proven to be, you know, iconically beyond reach, Not only were those scrolls difficult to apply virtual unwrapping to, but the ink from the ancient world did not readily show up in the scans that we made, and we needed an AI-based approach to be able to see that ink. I don't understand virtual unwrapping. Virtual unwrapping is actually a way that we can see the inside of something as detailed as a manuscript or a book without having to actually open it. It's based on tomography and x-ray. And it's proven pretty successful in the past, but Herculaneum, you know, these scrolls are iconically damaged. And it it was unknown if we could see anything from the inside because what you've got is carbon black ink written on basically vegetable material, which is papyrus. And then it's basically burned to a rigid crisp. Um, When you look at the material, you realize what a miracle it is that we can actually see anything inside. And, And what role did artificial intelligence play? Well, the ink isn't obviously visible in the way that we're doing the scanning. In fact, I don't know of another method that would make the ink um, directly visible. So, what the artificial intelligence, the machine learning, is allowing us to do is take the evidence of the ink that actually is there and amplify it so that to the human eye, we can clearly read the ink. And I mean, what do we know what's on the scroll so far? Well, the scroll's written in Greek, and we've been able to unwrap the top of about 12 columns. Uh, That's a little bit like taking, you know, the top half of a novel and then expecting you to be able to read a coherent story, right? So every page you get halfway through and then you lose the story. Uh, But it looks to be a philosophical work from probably Philodemus or at least the Epicureans about pleasure and uh, the importance of enjoying life. What do you think can potentially be
0: unlocked with some of the technology with which you're working?
14: Well, first of all, this corpus from Herculaneum represents uh, not an unlimited number of works from the ancient world, but, you know, maybe three or four hundred new volumes. Um, it, that's unprecedented. We haven't had that number of books, of volumes from the ancient world, from antiquity, since maybe 1300 or 1400, since the Renaissance. So we're talking about a seven or 800 year high in doing just the Herculaneum corpus. And, and we should note, Professor Seals, I mean, you're a,
0: you're a professor of computer science and, and the students who won study computer science and robotics. You're not archaeologists, are you?
14: No, we're not. And we're not classicists. I mean, I, I think that's just wonderful, though, because it's a collaborative effort. I mean, some of the best advances being made now in our modern world are, are things that are collaborative and, and that are across these various disciplines. Brent Seals,
0: professor of computer science at the University of Kentucky and co-founder of the Vesuvius Challenge. Thanks so much for being with us, sir. Thank you so much. Lebanon is considered one of the most socially tolerant Arab nations and has long been a haven for LGBTQ people from elsewhere in the region. But it's deep into an economic and political crisis now, and that makes it more difficult place to find refuge. And Pierre's Jane Araf spoke to one transgender woman in Beirut about her harrowing journey there and
15: onward. Christine is packing for a new life in Australia. She isn't taking much, a few folded clothes and a battered suitcase. And we're ready to go. She's 21, a Kurdish Iraqi. And she says this reminds her of when she fled home. She hopes eventually she'll be able to come to grips with the last two years.
16: A 19-year-old being under so much pressure that decides to run away from their homeland and hide it from her family to a whole new
15: different country. Christine says Lebanon opened its doors when she needed it most. She'd never been here before. A Kurdish speaker, she didn't even know Arabic. When I ask myself, why am I here? I
16: always get like super sad because it's all because I'm trans.
15: I'm an individual born in the wrong body. Christine is not using her birth name to avoid repercussions for her family in Iraq, where the LGBTQ community faces attacks from militias and even their own relatives. She has a slight build, delicate features, and short black tousled hair. Her near perfect English, she learned it from watching movies. She makes coffee over a hot plate in a kitchen with peeling white paint. Christine says when she was born, her father was thrilled at the thought his firstborn child was a boy, but then... As a kid, I was always attracted to my mom's makeup and I was attracted to like dolls and Barbie dolls and stuff. She says because of that, her father, and sometimes her mother, would beat her. At school, she had no friends.
16: I couldn't, like, find anyone to talk to and feel safe and open up and tell them that I don't feel like a boy,
15: I feel like a girl. In college, Christine passed as a man. But after her mother suspected she had worn a dress to a private pride party... She was like, because if that was the case, I would have either poisoned you myself,
16: or I would have let your uncle take care of you, meaning that my uncle's killing me.
15: So she ran away to Lebanon, one of the few countries where Iraqis can go without a visa. But even here, the space is narrowing.
17: Hezbollah
15: <laughs> leader, Hassan Nasrallah, recently told followers that under Islamic law, gay people are killed.
18: Lately we are facing a huge anti-queer, anti-gender campaign in Lebanon triggered by lots of religious figures.
15: Domit Aze is with HELM, an LGBTQ advocacy group in Lebanon.
19: And this has very, very, very dangerous consequences on the queer individuals
15: here. He says trans individuals are the most vulnerable. In Beirut, Christine couldn't get a job. She became a sex worker so she wouldn't end up in the street. She says she wants to talk about it because it happens to a lot of trans people. Always so scared.
20: It was just so painful. And so traumatizing, so scary. And you're so disgusted and you just wanted to end so bad.
15: But after two years in Beirut, another door has opened to Australia where she's been given entry because of persecution due to her gender identity. In Australia, she wants to go back to college and save money for gender-affirming surgery. Two days after we meet, Christine leaves me a voice message from an airport stopover.
16: Uh, it's, it's a weird experience to like finally just see everyone and you know just feel like any other human being. Oh my God, is this what I have missed for like 21 years?
15: Unlike so many, she's on her way to a new life. So far in so many ways from her old one. A life where she will finally feel safe to be who she is. Jane Araf, NPR News, Beirut.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at
15: brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. I'm Lisa Mullins, and I host All Things Considered. My friend Jimmy was a veteran of World War II. He was married for more than 60 years, and when his wife died, Jimmy said he felt lost. But then he met someone else who captured his heart— she was 91. He was 96. 96! Too old to start something new?
21: I don't believe that. As you age, you need more. You need someone to love. Because as you get old nobody pays much attention to you. So when you get someone you can love, it wakes you up. And hugging her and kissing her, it gives me strength and makes life a little better to live, you know. I think everybody should love somebody. It's important.
15: On this Valentine's Day, make life a little better for somebody important to you. Go to WBUR.org.
6: At least as soon as you stop wiping the tears out of your eyes from just listening to that uh, testament to love that Lisa Mullins just shared with us, uh, go to WBUR.org, call 1-800-909-9287. That is your pathway to support WBUR and to choose a great gift from Winston Flowers for Valentine's Day for your special someone.
8: The number to call to do that is 1-800-909-9287. You can also go to WBUR.org, our website, that's WBUR.org. You can see four choices, including a dozen or two dozen long-stemmed red roses. You can choose what's called the ultimate rose arrangement, which is, you know, any any of these choices are spectacular because Winston Flowers just works with the best flower growers around the world to make sure that these are really stunning. And then there's also flowers of uh, uh, the flower of the month, which means that your Valentine is going to get a delivery of fresh seasonal flowers once a month. For an entire year, beginning with roses on Valentine's Day. So lots to choose from. And the nice thing too, Sharon, is that any one of these choices becomes a little support for WBUR to help us bring you weekend edition and more of the journalism that we all need. So two great things come of this when you go to WBUR.org and choose a gift for your Valentine. 1-800-909-9287
6: 1-800-909-9287 or go to wbur.org. Your Someone Special gets those top quality flowers. And by making that gift, you are helping us tell the stories that that matter to all of us and, and share the stories that... Um, you know, bring joy to our lives. I mean, there isn't a much better feeling than having heard what Lisa Mullins just said about the nonagenarian couple that is taking such great joy in each other. Now, you can show your love by sending Winston Flowers and supporting WBUR, one 800 or go to WBUR.org. And thanks.
10: Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law and from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The news about news, about the business of journalism, is filled with layoffs, buyouts, and bankruptcies. The Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, Sports Illustrated, Time, National Geographic, The Wall Street Journal. We could go on. What a time for Calvin Trillin the fabled author, humorist, and New Yorker writer to come out with a collection of some of his reporting on reporters over the years, crime beat chroniclers, eccentric editors, word lyricists, columnists, and more. His new collection, The Lead, L-E-D-E, that expression in journalism for an opening paragraph, Dispatches from a Life in the Press. Calvin Trillin joins us now from New York. Mr. Trillin, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. I learned in this collection that we share one practical skill, and it, I, speaking for myself, it's the only practical skill I have. I can't even drive a car, and that's typing.
22: Yes, I'm a wizard at the typewriter. Or I make a lot of mistakes, but uh, I type very quickly. That's because my father, in Kansas City where I grew up, uh, when the schools ended rather early one year because they ran out of money, he sent me and my sister to uh, secretarial school. I, I used to think of my father's aspirations f- for me as uh, he wanted me to be president of the United States and that I not become a ward of the county. <laughs> but uh, neither one of those required typing, so I like to think maybe he was pushing me toward journalism.
0: Yeah. Wonderful profile in this collection of... Um... Edna Buchanan, the longtime police beat reporter in Miami. Uh, Maybe her best-known book is The Corpse Had a Familiar Face. What made her a great crime reporter? She
22: was relentless. She was asking questions after you thought that the conversation was over. And uh, she talked to me once about calling the uh, next of kin of somebody who had just been murdered. Mm -hmm. And if somebody— accused her of being just a ghoul and a vulture for calling at such a time, and hung up on her, she counted to 60, and then she called again. Uh, She figured that by that time, somebody might have said, you should have talked to that reporter, or maybe somebody else would answer the phone who was more talkative.
0: You um, also have a long, good section on R.W. Johnny Apple of The New York Times. Respected and feared political reporter for years, had been a war correspondent in Vietnam. He eventually became best known in his later years for inventing, would it be fair to call it the most envied beat in journalism?
22: (laughs) I think that would be fair. He also, in addition to the envied beat, he had an envied expense account.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it struck me, of course, I mean... You you were have have been famous also for uh, writing about food, but it's often Kansas City barbecue places or Texas barbecue places. Johnny Apple ranged around the world writing about food and uh, often not in humble barbecue places.
22: No, he entered the places. I, I think that when people talked about Apple, uh, when he entered one of those restaurants, the, the verb they usually used was he swept in. He, he wasn't one of those shy food people who don't want you to know that they're there?
0: And what, what do you think we can learn from Johnny Apple in journalism today?
22: Well, it's a it's a different business, of course, and and uh, Johnny, uh, in a, in a way, was at sort of beginning of 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 the new business because uh, in the old days, people thought of newspaper reporters as guys with uh, a bottle of bourbon in the lower right hand drawer and a sort of a greasy hat and a notebook. And then sooner or later, journalists got to be people who had, like Johnny, uh, gone to Princeton. Uh, Although I have to say he never graduated. He was the editor of the paper, and he thought that being the editor of the paper was in lieu of going to class or writing papers or anything like that.
0: What do you think about journalism these days?
22: Well, it's a different game. I think about how many reporters say, I don't know, the Baltimore Sun or the uh, Washington Post has at City Hall? And there's a big difference. Uh, in, on the other hand, there are a lot of people with various uh, ways of communicating that we didn't used to have. I, I don't know how I would have felt about it when I was first starting out, when I worked for Time Magazine in the South. Also, also it's it sort of turned reporters into wire service reporters, because it could be in the digital at any time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, I'm not sure it would have been as appealing to me as, as it was. On the other hand, I'm not sure that it would have been appealing to me if there hadn't been a subject that dominated w- what I was writing about. In, in my case, it was the uh, desegregation struggle in the South.
0: Yeah, the Civil Rights Movement. Yeah. yeah. You uh, you mentioned Johnny Apple going to Princeton, and, of course, you were at Yale. Should there be more journalists with greasy hats and bourbon in their drawers? Well, I hadn't thought That of sounds that. vaguely dirty. And <laughs> bourbon in the bottom drawer of their desk? that's
22: right. Uh, I, I once uh, published a tra- uh, book on travel, and there are various stories in it, and some reviewers said, you know, apparently not knowing as much as Johnny Apple knew about expense accounts, that— uh, these trips were available only to someone like the author uh, who's in the upper middle class. And uh, I called my sister in Kansas City and said, we finally made it. Uh, <laughs>
14: right.
22: uh, I think when reporters get too full of themselves, for instance, at something like the uh, gridiron dinner when they invite celebrities and everything like that. Even though they had have a tux on, uh, they're they're really somewhere between the people who own the tux uh, and the guy who's doing valet parking. Reporters, they're not a very classy bunch. They're often asked to leave places, and they uh, interrupt people when, when the people are trying to do their jobs. So I, I think somewhere in the middle.
0: Calvin Trillin, his new collection, The Lead, Dispatches from a Life in the Press. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. It's a sound that may strike fear or annoyance into the hearts of rivals. This week, European Soccer's governing body announced that bagpipes will be allowed in the stands at this summer's championships. Scotland fans are chuffed.
18: It's big news and we're absolutely delighted. Tartan Army, the Scotland supporters, are over the moon.
0: That's Ian Emerson, editor of the famous Tartan Army magazine. Germany is host of the Games and Emerson says that Scotland will need the lift.
18: We're going to be heavily outnumbered by the home supporters. You know, the Germans are going to have most of the stadium. So for us to be heard, we're quite a loud, boisterous support. But the bagpipes will help.
0: European soccer banned instruments like Vuvuzelas after 2010's World Cup in South Africa, saying they're a distraction, quote, drowning supporter emotions and detracting from the experience of the game. Why do they deem that bagpipes aren't distracting?
18: Well, the difference is that the bagpipes actually play a tune, while some of the other instruments uh, make loud noises, like horns and everything else is just like the one tone.
0: Bagpipes are traditionally made of sheepskin, and as Benedict observes in Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing, is it not strange that sheep guts should hail souls out of men's bodies? So where Ian Emerson hears a tune... Others may hear something closer to a bleat.
18: Some people do say that. And, um, well, it can be if they're not played correctly.
0: And there is another old line about bagpipes. A true gentleman is a man who knows how to play the bagpipes and doesn't.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Seiji Ozawa the conductor who led the Boston Symphony Orchestra for 29 years, died Tuesday at the age of 88 from heart failure. Yesterday, the orchestra played a tribute to the late maestro before a scheduled matinee. WBUR's Amelia Mason reports.
23: It's a quiet afternoon in Symphony Hall in Boston as people filter into the soaring auditorium. Joseph Pinocchio, a Reading. Already had tickets to the concert, but wasn't aware Seiji Ozawa had died.
16: When I came in and saw his uh, face on the
2: screen, uh, it hit me that he must have passed away. So it's kind of a bittersweet day for me.
23: Pinocchio's been coming to the symphony since the 1970s. He remembers when Ozawa joined the BSO in 1973.
2: I think at the time he was kind of a hip looking, uh, he used to wear beads and he, you know, a turtleneck and, uh, He was much different looking than the traditional conductors that uh, came. And the BSO was a very tradition-oriented orchestra. And to have a music director like Seiji Ozawa was quite a change.
23: In remarks before the performance, BSO president and CEO Chad Smith recalls his first encounter with Ozawa.
0: Like so many people on this stage and on stages around the globe, I first encountered Seiji when I was a student at Tanglewood. And I will never forget the intensity in his eyes as he conducted me and my opera colleagues in a work by
23: Poulenc. During his tenure in Boston, Ozawa boosted the BSO's presence on the international stage. He conducted major orchestras in Europe and continued to conduct in his native Japan. And he's credited with opening the door for other Asian classical music artists.
11: He helped lead one of the most seismic changes in classical music in the last century, and that is... The movement of the center of gravity in our art form steadily eastward toward Asia.
23: After Smith's remarks, Karina Kanalakis conducts the Boston Symphony Orchestra in Bach's Air on a G string. It's the piece Ozawa always chose as a tribute to lost friends. This weekend, the BSO sign above Symphony Hall will be only partially illuminated, leaving just Ozawa's initials, S.O., in honor of the late Maestro. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the XFINITY 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. XFINITY from Comcast. The future starts now. And showcase cinemas in the Museum of African American History with a screening of Malcolm X and discussion with historian Dr. Carrie Greenwich. Showcasecinemas.com. And the Museum of Science with Changing Landscapes and Immersive Journey. A new exhibit transporting you to iconic spots around the globe. MOS.org.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Jay Clayton is with me in the studio. And for just a few moments now, during Weekend Edition Saturday, we're reminding you that Valentine's Day is Wednesday. And we would like to suggest that you take advantage of this great opportunity to do something excellent for someone you love and for WBUR at the same time, order Winston flowers. 1-800-909-9287 one eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven is the number you call. To get that transaction started you can also go to WBUR dot
8: org. If you've never sent Winston Flowers before and you're you know wondering what is so special about them, I, I I I would offer this. If Winston Flowers were a radio station, I think it would be WBUR. Mm. That's the level of quality that they bring to their craft and their artistry. And if WBUR were a florist, we'd be Winston Flowers, right? It's it's just that tight and that well-connected. And so you're able to send these flowers, and with those flowers, you also send some support our way. And we really appreciate that because we need more listeners and more listener dollars to be able to fund the programs that matter to you. So we really appreciate it when you take your time to send your flowers through us they can go to your Valentine nearly anywhere in New England. You can check out all the choices and details and choose the perfect gift that works for you and, and that you know someone in your life would appreciate. Just go to WBUR.org, that's WBUR.org, or you can call us at 1-800-909-9287.
6: You know, Jay, what you just said reminded me of something. Um, my favorite snow cone shop, which is Hanson Snowblizz in New Orleans, Um, has a slogan, which is, there are no shortcuts to quality. And that is another thing that links Winston Flowers and WBUR, right? I mean, you have this absolute rigorous attention to detail and the absolute highest quality. It takes a little time. You want to get it right. If that is what you want to give to somebody special in your life while supporting WBUR, and we think it very well might be, Go to 1-800-909-9287 to make the call or call or go to the website, WBUR.org.
10: And thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR.
11: I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News
0: in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Sime, In this hour, why would the biggest name in show business fly across an ocean for a football game? a Super Bowl with the makings of a Hallmark movie. Also, echoes of 2016 in this week's special counsel report. Charges dropped against an Ohio pastor who took people sleeping on the street into his church. And the Grody Patinkin family brings their act from online to on
24: stage. My suggestion to anyone listening here, if you're having a little tension at home with your spouse, just ask anyone around to turn a camera on and everybody's very nice to you.
0: First, we have our newscast today is Saturday, February 10, 2024.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Israeli troops have reportedly detained a woman in the West Bank and two brothers in Gaza. And NPR's Greg Myrie reports that all three detainees are Palestinian-Americans.
14: Multiple news organizations say the brothers, Hashem al-Aga, age 20, and Borak al-Aga, age 18, were detained by Israel on Thursday during a raid in the southern Gaza Strip. The brothers are originally from Chicago. They sought to leave Gaza when the current war began, but had not received permission required from Israel and neighboring Egypt, according to family members. The Israeli military did not immediately comment. The U.S. State Department says it's aware of the reports, but did not provide details. Also, a 46-year-old Palestinian-American woman, Samaher Ismail, was reportedly detained Monday in the West Bank. Greg
2: Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The U.S. is warning Israel that an offensive in the southern Gaza city of Rafah would be a disaster. Israel says Rafah is the last remaining stronghold of Hamas in Gaza. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has asked the military to plan for an evacuation of civilians. Ukrainian authorities say a Russian drone attack has killed at least seven people in the city of Kharkiv. The BBC's Sarah Rainsford reports the drones are thought to have hit an oil depot, resulting in a fire that engulfed a residential street.
10: The drone attack on Kharkiv has killed three children. The youngest was a seven-month-old baby, and his brothers were seven and four. They died in their homes with their parents after a fire broke out late on Friday night and spread too quickly for them to escape. In another house, two pensioners were killed. A regional police chief has talked about a hellish lava pouring down the street after what's described as a large fuel depot nearby was hit by the drones. As the leak spread, it set fire to homes and cars. Dozens of people were evacuated and buildings destroyed.
2: Former President Donald Trump was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania Friday for a speech at the NRA sponsor, Great American Outdoors Show. Jeremy Long, a member station WITF, reports that the speech came a day after President Biden's exoneration for his handling of classified documents.
14: Trump sounded off on Biden, claiming injustice that he was charged and Biden was not. Trump is facing 40 criminal charges for his handling of classified documents. This includes willful retention of national defense information and conspiracy to obstruct justice.
8: They're trying desperately to spin the Biden document disaster
0: into a, oh, but wasn't Trump worse? No, 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 Trump was peanuts by comparison.
14: The Republican special counsel investigating Biden, who was nominated by Trump to be U.S. attorney for the District of Maryland, did not find sufficient evidence to draw charges. For NPR News, I'm Jeremy Long in Harrisburg.
2: And from Washington, this is NPR News.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. South Shore Hospital is experiencing record-breaking patient volumes. The Patriot Ledger reports that December was the busiest month in the hospital's history. An average of 360 people a day sought care at the hospital's emergency room. The high volume stems in part from the closures of nearby emergency departments in Quincy, Norwood, and Brockton. Five employees at a popular New England ski resort were fired this week for wearing Nazi armbands at a costume party, the J-Peak employees were from other countries and were working in Vermont as part of the federal J-1 visa program. Boston is marking Lunar New Year today. This is the first year Boston has recognized it as an official city holiday. The festival celebrates the first new moon of the lunar calendar. Debbie Ho is executive director of Boston's Chinatown Main Street, and she notes that it's the year of the dragon.
4: A nice roaring feeling coming out with the spirit of the dragon to push all the bad combo away.
6: Next Sunday, Chinatown will celebrate with a free family festival, including arts and crafts, calligraphy, and dancing. It is 38 degrees in Boston with some sunshine today and highs reaching
7: the low 60s. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the George Lucas Educational Foundation creator of Edutopia, dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Jay Clayton is with me in the studio. And we are reminding you that, first of all, Valentine's Day is Wednesday, and that's kind of sneaking up on us. And if you are going to send flowers to someone special we'd like to remind you to consider sending Winston flowers from WBUR. That way your loved one will get the highest quality flowers available and you support WBUR. You're helping us tell the stories that matter and share uh, the journalism that makes a difference in all of our lives. So the way that you do this is you call 1-800-909-9287. Or you go to WBUR.org.
8: You can choose a dozen roses. You can choose two dozen roses, as many people do. You can choose what we call the ultimate arrangement, which is just stunning. They all are, really, and Winston Flowers makes sure of that. And then there's a fourth choice that uh, some people choose, which is flowers every month for a year, different seasonal flowers throughout the year, beginning with roses on Valentine's Day. And as much as this will mean to the person who receives this gift from you, it will mean a lot to WBUR too because when you choose the flowers from us, you're also supporting this programming that you depend on, on the air, online, at city space, all the ways that you connect with us, the root of it all is listener support. And that is why tens of thousands of people over the years have have chosen this way to support WBUR, because you're maybe going to spend the money anyway over the weekend to get something nice for somebody for Valentine's Day. This way, you can do that and have the added value of also supporting WBUR. So take a look at the choices, and you can choose the perfect one for your Valentine at WBUR.org. W-B-U-R and you can call us if that's easier, one 800 909 9287. And Sharon, you know, just one more thought. Valentine's Day is in the middle of the week, but we know how busy that time is. So All maybe right. take a minute right now.
6: Exactly. Take a moment now while we're thinking of it during weekend edition. Uh, you know, you'll be hearing what's coming up on weekend edition, including uh, a really interesting conversation about China's economic influence in the Middle East and how the U.S. is hoping to manage that. Uh, that's just ahead. Uh, but while you're thinking about it, Right now, make that phone call 1 800 909 9287 or go to WBUR.org. And you know, over the past couple of decades, tens of thousands of WBUR listeners have have made this their tradition of sending Valentine's Winston flowers from WBUR. We're asking you to uh, go ahead and do that now. Uh, You'll get your Valentine's Day gift um, situation all wrapped up and feel good about that. 1-800-909-9287, or go to WBUR.org. And thanks.
0: This is Weekend Edition. From NPR News, I'm Scott Simon. The war between Israel and Hamas has highlighted the limits of U.S. influence in the region. It has also shown what country does hold sway in the Middle East, China. The country the U.S. views as an economic and security threat has hundreds of billions and billions of dollars in investments and partnerships with almost every country in the region. And the U.S. hopes that China's role in the Middle East could be used to do what the U.S. has not been able to do bring peace in the region. Don Murphy is associate professor of national security strategy at the National War College, joins us in our studios. Thanks so much for being with us.
17: Thank you for having me today.
0: This is going to sound naive, but what, what is China's interest in the Middle East?
17: China's interest is mostly economic and political. For decades, it's been building its presence through investment and trade and acquiring energy. And increasingly, it really wants support from countries in the region in a number of different institutions.
0: And what kind of investments has it made?
17: It's a wide range of sectors. There would be kind of the traditional oil sector, but then you also have artificial intelligence and and digital and health and other areas, so pretty much any type of investment that could occur, China's engaged in in the Middle East. And
0: uh, and help us understand its relationship with Iran, because, of course, Iran has uh, been the focus of a lot of attention. Its militias have been uh, uh, supporting attacks on U.S. and Israeli targets.
17: China has very positive relations with Iran, very robust economic and political relations. That said, I think we shouldn't overemphasize the relationship with Iran because China also has very strong partnerships with Arab Gulf countries as well as Egypt and, and other countries throughout the region.
0: It, ha- it has played a role in, in brokering a kind of agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, hasn't it?
17: Yes. Last year, it brought together Iran and Saudi Arabia to renormalize their relations.
0: What kind of policy is China practicing or not as regards the current conflict?
17: When we talk about the current conflict with the Israel Hamas War, China's stance is very consistent with its stance for decades, that it does not want it to spread into a broader regional conflict, but its behavior tends to be relatively Palestinian leaning. So in the longer term, it sees the current conflict as part of the broader Palestinian Israeli conflict. And until that is negotiated, that peace is not possible.
0: And, and we should underscore, although China tends to be more pro-Palestinian in its sympathies, it, it still endorses a two-state solution, which would not entail the destruction of Israel.
17: Absolutely. I mean, its stance has been that there needs to be a two-state solution, that parties need to get together and negotiate, that it's important to have an independent Palestinian state with East Jerusalem as the capital. But I've emphasized the relationship with the Palestinians, but China also has very robust state-to-state relations with Israel, as well as with every other country in the Middle East. So it doesn't want to pick sides in general.
0: How tricky is it for the United States to ask China for help?
17: So I think the the way that I look at it is that China and the US have shared interests in the Middle East. They have a shared interest in stability in resolution of the Israel-Hamas war, not having that conflict um, erupt into the broader region, being able to protect shipping, et cetera. So I think there is a lot of shared interests that although there is a competitive dynamic on the global stage, the Middle East in particular is an area where given the current scenario where it could um, really metastasize. Size into a much broader conflict. Both sides have an interest in the end of hostilities and keeping it from spreading.
0: From the US point of view, what could China do that might be helpful?
17: From a U.S. perspective, China could encourage Iran, and, and I specify encourage because I think there's a an unrealistic expectation that China would be able to coerce Iran into changing its behavior. But China does have positive relations both with Iran as well as the other countries in the region as well as non-state actors. So I think that would be constructive. I also
0: how would how China do that though exactly?
17: I think a lot of it will occur more through back channels. And and part of why I say this is that this is a very delicate balancing act right now for China, not wanting to pick sides in the Israel-Hamas conflict, also not wanting to pick sides between the Saudis and the Iranians and the Israelis, right? So it's not wanting to deviate from that. It also doesn't want to be seen as taking the US side too much because of the the broader um, dynamic of competition.
0: Is this an interest that the, the U.S. could begin to regret if China begins to play an overwhelming role in the region?
17: I think the way I look at it is right now the dynamic in... U.S.-China relations has become quite adversarial and and quite competitive in many regions and in many functional areas. And I think a region like the Middle East, or potentially Sub-Saharan Africa, or or some other regions, are are areas where we have more shared interests than differences, and that in the Middle East, for example, China is not wanting to play the military role that the U.S. does. There's no indication that they want to play that security role. So I think it is a space where the two could coexist, and that cooperating on select issues in this region or others would provide some stability in the broader U.S.-China relationship at a time when the primary dynamic is competitive.
0: Don Murphy is Associate Professor of National Security Strategy at the National War College. Thanks so much for being with us.
17: Thank you so much for having me.
0: At the U.S. Supreme Court this week, it was less about whether former President Trump engaged in rebellion on January 6th and more about who decides. Leave such questions to each state. Chief Justice Roberts imagined and...
1: Um, although my predictions have never been correct, uh, I would expect that uh, you know a goodly number of states will say, uh, whoever the Democratic candidate is, you're off the ballot, and others Uh, for the Republican candidate, you're off the ballot. It'll come down to just a handful of states that are going to decide the presidential election. That's a pretty daunting consequence.
0: Later today on All Things Considered, what's at stake in the Colorado case barring Trump from the ballot? You can listen by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. And now it's time for sports. Chiefs, Niners, Super Bowl 58, wings, ads, celebrities in the stands. If their planes land in time, Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media joins us. Howard, thanks so much for being with us.
7: Good morning, Scott.
0: The Kansas City Chiefs would be the first team in 19 years to repeat as Super Bowl champions. If they win tomorrow, that would really cinch their legacy, wouldn't
7: it? Well, it would. They are the team to beat right now. It's sort of fascinating how quickly the Patriots have been supplanted by another dynasty. Normally it takes some time to have somebody else emerge, but this is Patrick Mahomes' time. This is the Kansas City Chiefs' time. They are the the best team. They're going for their third Super Bowl, fourth Super Bowl appearance. And it's fascinating how good they are when they really weren't even that good this year. But what happens when you have the best player, you're dealing with not just Mahomes and the Chiefs, but Mahomes' aura. So beating him is very similar to beating these great quarterbacks. And he's just he's he is now being discussed already as not just the best quarterback in the game right now, but one of the best of all time.
0: There's a great story going on with San Francisco, too. They haven't won the Super Bowl since 1995. Their quarterback, Brock Purdy, was the last player to be picked in the NFL draft two years ago. And what is the
7: nickname for those guys, Scott? Well, uh, the- Mr. Irrelevant. Oh right. In other words, that is how unlikely it is that you'll even get on a roster. If you're the last player picked in a draft, they make fun of you. They've always made fun of you because you have no chance of making the NFL. And here is Brock Purdy, not just in his second year, but he's in the Super Bowl. He's a starting quarterback in the Super Bowl after being Mr. Irrelevant. And we talked about Tom Brady being that guy. Yeah. And he was the, a sixth round pick at a 199th pick in the draft. And that was improbable. So this is even more so. The San Francisco 49ers really do feel like this is their moment. They lost to the Chiefs in the Super Bowl four years ago. They've been talking about that loss as motivation for getting back to this point. And from Kyle Shanahan, the coach, to Brock Purdy, to the players, they really say that they need this moment. And when you have a team that really believes that that is something, that this championship is something that is legacy-defining, if we're going to use those terms, we're going to have a great game. Both
0: teams have a lot to prove. And both coaches. Kyle Shanahan uh, has never won a Super Bowl. Andy Reid is going for his third one, but he he was once kind of dismissed just a few years ago.
7: Exactly. Remember the Andy Reid in Philadelphia who couldn't win the big one? The Andy Reid that everyone said, if they lose, if the Eagles lost, it was going to be because of him. The Andy Reid who didn't know how to manage a clock. The Andy Reid who was the loser. And now we're looking at Andy Reid going for a third Super Bowl. You're looking at him as an easy first ballot Hall of Famer. He's he's now one of the great coaches of all time. And Kyle Shanahan is in a similar place that Andy Reid was in years ago. He was the offensive coordinator when the Falcons lost the 28 to 3 lead legendarily to the yeah. Patriots in overtime. He lost the Super Bowl four years ago. He lost the NFC Championship game to Philadelphia last year and then to the Rams a couple of years ago. If they lose, does it? do you blow up the 49ers? Absolutely not. But Kyle Shanahan has not been afraid to come out and say, look, after all these really near misses, I need this win. I got to have this win. And, and as we all know in sports, it really does begin to multiply. The longer you go without winning, the more people think you're a loser. And uh, especially in football, where that window closes, Kyle Shanahan will be on those sidelines knowing that these opportunities don't come that often. This is
0: it. Howard, I know you don't want to give predictions, but let me put you on the spot. Will Taylor Swift make it in time for the kickoff? She'll be there.
7: Book it, man. She will be
0: there. Trust me. (laughs) Your words, Howard. I always trust them. Howard <laughs> yeah. Bryant of Meadowlark Media, thanks so much for being with us.
7: Oh, my pleasure, Scott.
0: I can't wait when she misses her flight. When she doesn't get oh. there, people say, you promised. Uh, oh, but uh, misses her. It's not like she's going to be standing in a long line like the rest of us, is it?
7: Exactly. She's in Comfort Plus.
0: And you're listening to NPR News. We're funded
5: by you, our listeners, and by Boston Medical Center, modeling a new kind of excellence in healthcare built on clinical expertise and equity. Learn more about Rewriting Healthcare at BMC.org and Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Become a certified psychoanalyst and earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand how you can help your patients develop emotionally fulfilling lives. All prior master's degrees qualify for psychoanalytic training. Now accepting applications for fall,
6: bgsp. dot This is ninety point nine WBUR coming up. WBUR's Amy sokolo pays a visit to a barber shop in Boston South End, where one barber is making a difference for queer, trans, and non-binary customers. That's ahead. First, we're just taking a moment during Weekend Edition to remind you that the time has come. To support WBUR and choose just the right gift from Winston Flowers for Valentine's Day, you make that happen by calling 1-800-909-9287 or you go to WBUR.org. I'm Sharon Brody. Jay Clayton is here with me to reinforce our suggestions.
8: Yes. So right now you may be thinking about a Super Bowl celebration of some kind tomorrow But then when that game ends, we are right on the doorstep of Valentine's Day. And we've got this tradition here at WBUR with our partners at Winston Flowers. They are the best at what they do. And they will send your Valentine simply stunning works of art. If flowers can be a work of art, these are the ones that do it. And Winston Flowers will send one or two dozen long-stemmed red roses or the ultimate rose arrangement, which is, uh, Sharon, maybe a foot and a half tall. It's pretty amazing. Or flowers every month for a year, beginning with roses on Valentine's Day. And either choice also matters to WBUR because it becomes support for this journalism that you're listening to. 1-800-909-9287 1-800-909-9287 is one way to get your flowers going, and the other is WBUR.org.
10: Support for NPR comes from the station and from St. Martin's Press, Publishers of The Women, a novel by Kristen Hanna, author of The Nightingale, a portrait of coming of age and a tale of a nation divided. The Women is available wherever books and audiobooks are sold. From Cigna Healthcare, a health benefits provider that advocates for better health through every stage of life, learn more at cigna.com. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Special Counsel Robert Hur said he didn't have the evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that President Biden willfully retain classified documents. But the nearly 400-page report did not stop there. It also described apparent memory lapses during interviews with the president and included a sentence that is being incessantly quoted, that the president comes across as, quote, a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. As NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith reports, this has echoes of the 2016 presidential campaign.
13: An investigation in the middle of a presidential campaign wraps up with no charges. And yet the words of the investigator hurt far more than they help.
7: There is evidence that they were extremely careless in their handling of very sensitive, highly classified information.
13: That was then FBI Director James Comey, taking the unusual step of holding a press conference to announce the conclusion of the FBI's investigation into Hillary Clinton and her aides. He went on for 12 highly critical minutes before getting around to what he was there to announce.
7: Our judgment is that no reasonable prosecutor would bring such a case.
13: On its face, it looked like good news for Clinton. But Jennifer Palmieri, who was the campaign's communications director, says it was probably the single most damaging day of the campaign. The ad hominem attacks against
6: her were, were brutal.
13: The Justice Department Inspector General later found that Comey's comments violated long-standing department practice and protocol. Palmieri says Clinton's campaign was blindsided and the damage was done. Irredeemable damage. It's hard not to see a historical echo. In the case of Her's report, Republican politicians immediately took to the airwaves to question Biden's mental competency.
5: If he's not competent to
11: stand trial, why is he the commander-in-chief
5: with the authority doddering
13: unfit to ...unfit president of the United States for a disastrous press conference uh, Cheryl, to try clean
11: I The man can't recite I mean, the We need to look
13: at possibly impeachment. Democratic Congressman Dan happened. Goldman says Her's report has a lot in common with what Comey did in 2016
7: these are criminal investigators who have stepped out of the normal role of sticking with the facts and evidence and analyzing whether the elements of a crime are met
13: goldman is a former federal prosecutor and biden ally he says both comey and her may have felt political pressure to prove their independence and not to seem like they were going easy on democrats
7: special counsel her went out of his way to editorialize and include extraneous information that was not relied upon or relevant to his ultimate charging decision.
13: That is, detailing President Biden's failure to recall key dates. This is a point the White House argued yesterday, with the vice president going so far as to describe her's report as clearly politically motivated. Her hasn't weighed in on why he included that information. But the damage may already be done.
7: I think this will have the same kind of impact.
13: Frank Luntz is a pollster who spent years working for Republicans, and he too draws a parallel to Comey in 2016. Luntz recently did a focus group with people who voted for Biden in 2020, but aren't sure they can do it again.
7: And the age thing is the number one concern, more than immigration, more than inflation,
13: Public polls show even before this political storm, more than three quarters of voters were concerned about Biden's mental and physical health. And Luntz says this report gives credibility to that worry. It's from
7: an independent source saying this guy is not prepared for four more years. I don't think this is significant. I think this is pivotal.
13: And that's why Biden's team is working overtime to disqualify special counsel her, pointing out, among other things, that he served in the Trump administration and isn't a doctor. They're also trying to prove to the public that Biden is fully capable and should be elected to serve another four years. It's a race to stop her from becoming the Comey of 2024. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House.
0: In Bryan, Ohio, a pastor and the city have been in a legal dispute over whether people should be allowed to shelter in his church. The city filed criminal charges against the pastor, and in turn, he sued the city's top officials for religious discrimination. NPR's Juliana Kim reports.
3: Bryan, Ohio, is a city about an hour west of Toledo. A small church there known as Dad's Place began offering overnight stays to homeless people starting last March. Jeremy Dice is one of the attorneys representing Dad's place. He told NPR last month that the church was largely doing so due to the city's housing shortage.
18: The housing crisis in Bryan is huge.
24: There's no place for people to be who are unhoused.
3: The church isn't far from the city's homeless shelter, but it is located in a district that doesn't allow residential use on the first floor of a building. The city also said it was concerned with an influx of police calls regarding the church and incidents like larceny and harassment. Officials later learned that the church building wasn't up to code and pressed charges against Pastor Chris Avell out of concerns that it was unsafe for people to sleep there. Dice said the building is simply old and the church staff was working tirelessly to fix it up.
18: No one is more concerned about the safety
24: of people sheltering than the church and Pastor Avell. They want to have a safe environment.
3: Avell faced multiple zoning code violations, which are punishable by fines and prison time. In response, the church filed a federal lawsuit last month against the city and its officials for religious discrimination. The church argued that providing food and shelter is a form of religious expression and therefore it's protected by the Constitution.
18: Churches have throughout history, in this country and in others, they have taken in anybody who walks through their doors.
3: The suit is ongoing with a hearing set for March, but this week the city of Bryan decided to drop its charges to the relief of Pastor Avell.
24: Bryan is my home. And I'm eager to continue to serve God, my community, and the people I love.
3: In turn, the church agreed to work with the city to meet the safety codes. In the meantime, Dad's Place plans to continue to offer temporary shelter. Juliana Kim, NPR News.
0: Snow is a fox. Really, a fox spirit able to allure to entrap and to change shapes. Snow can take on the form of a woman referred to as Asan, and in 1908, she's on the hunt for the man who murdered her daughter. Snow's search for truth and justice through Manchuria, and Japan is at the center of Yang Shi Chu's new novel, The Foxwife. And Yang Shi Chu, the author of several best-selling novels, including The Night Tiger, joins us now from California. Thanks so much for being with us.
21: Thank you for having me, Scott. It's such an honor. Well,
0: the honor is ours. Help us understand the position that the fox can hold in various Chinese cultures.
21: You know, I've always thought that the legend of the fox is so fascinating. In Chinese literature and also Japanese and Korean legends, the fox is a shapeshifter, as you mentioned, who can turn itself into a very attractive person and folklore is full of these stories many of them odd figments of stories of foxes who interact with people often tricking them sometimes killing them or making off with their property the classic fox tale is that there's a scholar who's studying for the imperial exams late one evening when there's a knock at the door and a beautiful woman appears later on of course he discovers She's Not Human, which raises all sorts of questions about what is this story really about? But when I was a child, I read lots of these stories and I was always fascinated by the fox, by this creature. Why do they come at night? Why do they always interrupt people's exams? (laughs) And what lies on the other side of the door? You know, the sort of wildness and otherness. That's really interesting.
0: Snow is searching for a photographer named to Nikon. What does she think she knows about what he knows?
21: She thinks that if she finds him, it will be the answer to solve a lot of her anger and bitterness. So, when I wrote this novel, um, I hadn't really planned it. I started off with the idea of a woman who's also a fox. And I thought about what sort of driving need would take you out of the grasslands of Mongolia where she starts off with, to go into human society. And so she is looking to avenge her child, but I think it's a much more complicated narrative. And it turned out to be a story about old relationships and old loves.
0: Mm. I found myself very drawn to the character of Bao Gong, Mm -hmm. uh, who, of course, is a retired detective. I shouldn't say, of course, (laughs) a retired detective who's called into the mystery when a, uh, a woman is found dead in an alley. He also kind of has a special power, which is useful for a detective, doesn't he?
19: Mm -hmm.
21: Yes, he can hear truth from lies. You know, I mentioned earlier that I, I don't really plan well. But when I started this novel and I wrote chapter two, the words the detective appeared on my screen as I was typing them. And as I wrote about him, I felt like he could probably tell the difference between when people were lying or not. And I think, you know, most of us actually can tell a lot about someone from their voice. Sound is one of the senses that we pay less attention to than we might have in the past. I think we live in an increasingly visual world of screens where we rely on eyesight. But when you close your eyes and really listen, they've actually found from studies that people can quite accurately tell, you know, describe the person who's talking just from the tone of their voice.
0: Bao Gong muses at one point, and it was so beautiful, I wrote down the word, foxes are said to beguile people, charming tricksters. They will carry off your gold wine cups as well as your heart. But it goes on to say, yet easily killed or maimed, they lose paws, tails, and their own lives in gruesome ways. Boy, it makes your root for the fox.
21: Yes, I, I think that they are very vulnerable. You know, the funny thing is that all over the world, the nature of the fox seems similar. When you look at Native American legends or the European tales and to China, it is a wily, tricky animal. And one thing that struck me is that you're only a trickster if you don't have much power. Like the apex predators in these environments, like a lion, does not have to be particularly tricky. So I think the sense of being a fox and also, the form of a young woman, are both very vulnerable forms. And I I try to bring it across in my book, where the foxes and the women are constantly under threat of being captured or imprisoned, or as a fox, trapped.
0: You grew up around the world, a Malaysian family of Chinese descent. Did did you grow up hearing Chinese folklore?
21: I did. I read a lot of stories, and my mum also told me stories. It's a very rich world of mythology, which has many, many animal spirits in it. The fox is part of what they call the Wu Da or the five great clans. It is a folk religion from northern China, in which the five great clans who are worshipped as gods of wealth are the fox, the hedgehog, Um, I think the weasel, the rat, and the snake. That's very weird to us because they sound more like pests, which also raises the question of why would you worship them, or is it a way to placate
0: them? To placate them Mm -hmm. because we fear them.
21: Well, maybe they eat up our wealth. If you think about in the past, wealth was probably grain.
0: How many stories do you have going on in your mind at any given moment, do you think?
21: usually one but the one story is made of many stories which you might have noticed in the fox wife there is a chinese tradition of writing notes and commentary in the margins of a book and then the book would get passed around and over the years if some of the comments were particularly good or written by noted scholars when the book was republished they would republish it with these funny notes so it'd be sort of like getting a copy of Beowulf with a comment by Jane Austen. Very interesting reading. And I wanted to do that with The Fox Wife and add many, many stories. But then I also realized that perhaps people don't like to read footnotes. So we had to pull back from that. But in my mind, when you asked like, is it one story or many? It is both. It is the one story which gives rise to many, many others, which I think is the nature of tales.
0: Yang Shi Chu, her new novel, The Fox Wife. Thank you so much for being with us.
21: It was my pleasure, Scott. Thank you so much for having me.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. For many people who are queer, trans, or non-binary, getting a haircut can be a challenge. They say they often feel uncomfortable and have a difficult time getting barbers to understand what they're looking for. But a barber in Boston's South End is reaching out to them via social media, drawing attention and clients with videos of customers receiving what are being called gender-affirming haircuts. WBUR's Amy Sokolow paid a visit.
12: Are we doing a bit skid, faith? We, we doing what we usually do? Okay. Yes. Get this out of your eyes. Let me texturize it.
25: M. Arita is cutting Aaron Cho's hair at Barbershop Deluxe. Cho is trans. He moved to the Boston area a year ago and was looking for a queer-friendly barber.
12: I don't really want to put myself in environments where I feel like it's a bunch of, like, dudes talking about sports and girls, and that's just not the type of environment I want to go into.
25: He came across Arita on Instagram.
20: I found them, and I was like, oh. This person looks cool.
25: Over the past three years, Arita has posted hundreds of Instagram videos. Most of them feature clients sitting in Arita's barber chair. Arita asks detailed questions about their vision for their haircut, their hair history, and their gender identity. Many clients have a complex relationship with their hair, like this one featured in a recent clip.
23: I still get pegged a lot as a woman and I don't really feel like I am a woman, I just feel like I'm myself. Mm-hmm. And I lean more towards masculinity and yep. like my clothing style and like how I present myself. So I feel like getting a shorter
17: haircut would make me feel even more comfortable.
25: Arita, who's non-binary, got into the industry to help ease some of that tension. They first thought about cutting hair about fifteen years
12: ago. Now I go to barbershops and it was fine. I never had like a bad experience there, but I was like, they're not like really my people exactly, you know
25: so they envisioned a different environment.
12: Wouldn't it be dope if there was like a barbershop, but it was all queer people, or there were like queer people in there cutting hair, or like queer people hanging out? Cause I loved like the, kind of the vibe of the barbershop, everybody like shooting the breeze.
25: Arita enrolled in barber school in 2017 and landed at Barbershop Deluxe shortly after graduating. They say, as far as they know, they were the first barber in the Boston area to cater specifically to the queer community. That includes masculine-presenting men, non-binary people, queer women, all gender identities. Arita's social media videos began gaining traction last spring, when they started working with a marketing coach. Some have gotten more than a million views. Arita often struggles to understand why these videos get so much attention, positive or negative.
12: Sometimes it trips me up when people <laughs> send me like hate DMs. And I'm like, I'm just over here making my, my like, dumb little haircut videos. <laughs> like, I don't know, like, why are you getting so mad? Queer people need to get their haircut, and they shouldn't have to feel, like, uncomfortable.
25: Arita is careful to protect client safety. They never tag or otherwise identify clients in posts. Social media followers have labeled Arita's haircuts as gender-affirming, although Arita thinks that applies to all haircuts.
12: I just don't think that a lot of cis people, like, think about it that way because they don't really have to. But, you know... People feel good after a haircut, everybody does. And I think it's because they feel like more affirmed in their appearance. And gender presentation is part of your appearance.
25: But Arita says for people
12: struggling with their
25: gender identity, hair is a powerful tool to figure it out.
12: Getting a haircut, like you don't need to go like see a doctor, you don't need a prescription, you don't need insurance. Like it's a thing that if you're struggling with your appearance, and this goes for anybody, it's something that you can do to help yourself.
25: That's how Aaron Cho kick-started his own gender transition as a teen. He bought a pair of clippers in high school, but wasn't ready to drastically change his hairstyle until college. He cut his hair short in the privacy of his dorm room. Now, almost a decade later, he sits in Arita's chair and runs his fingers through his newly-styled do. What do you think?
12: I think it looks great. It feels good, too.
25: Cho will be back in a month for a mid-skin fade and a trim to get the hair out of his eyes. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Socklow.
6: WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare Advantage plants as low as $0 per month, new benefits for 2024, bluecrossma.com slash go. And Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at howdoyouseetheworld.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're giving you an opportunity to support WBUR and choose a great gift from Winston Flowers for Valentine's Day. Go to WBUR.org or call
10: 1-800-909-9287. Support for NPR comes from the station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at BetterHelp.com public. From Capital One, offering their premium travel card Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Gideon grody Petinkin, like many people, took up a hobby during COVID, not baking bread or crocheting socks. He began making videos, sweet little interrogations of his parents that he posted on social media.
20: What do you guys think you agree on?
0: Gideon grody Petinkin's parents are quite noteworthy, oh, yeah. Catherine Grody and Mandy Petinkin.
24: What are we, the big uh, things let, you let, agree let, on? Let, let's do it by process of elimination. We don't agree on what to eat.
4: No God, it's got We like different things to time. eat.
24: We don't agree on what movies to go to. Yeah. We like different <laughs> kinds of movies. Mm-hmm. We don't agree yeah, do on, don't like on evening <laughs> activities. She likes to watch lots of things or listen to things or, or listen do to something. podcasts or watch lots of things. I don't.
0: <laughs> Andy so, Patinkin is a star of stage and screen. Broadway Sundays in the Park with George the movie The Princess Bride, TV's Homeland. Catherine Grody is a writer and Desk nominee, Obie Award-winning actor. Maybe their finest production is 40-plus years of marriage and two sons. Inspired by the popularity of their son Gideon's videos, they're taking that relationship on the road and putting it on stage with occasional appearances, like in the Washington, D.C. area on Valentine's Day. An evening with Mandy Patinkin and Catherine Grody, moderated by their son Gideon Grody Patinkin. We're joined now by the trio of Patinkins and Grodies and Grody Patinkins, Mandy, Catherine, and Gideon. Thank you so much for being with us.
24: Thank you well, thank for having us. Thank you for us.
4: having us, Scott. It's really <sighs> thrilling for me.
0: Gideon, aside from just, I, I think, maybe the ennui so many people felt at various times during COVID, what made you start making these videos and decide to share them?
20: I think, um, the, the first piece of it was feeling like I had this extra period of time with my parents and felt very close to the possibility that they might get this thing and die. So it kind of felt like an urgency of getting a, a record of them. And I really love the different layers and levels and colors that come out of them when they're being recorded i can ask them a question that they've answered a billion times around the dinner table and then if i make a little video sometimes other things and memories are coming to light so i really just started doing it as a kind of family archive and then to our great surprise people kept being interested in us just kind of Hanging around, and these two lunatics being themselves.
4: <laughs> three lunatics, Scott. Let's be honest here. Yeah.
20: Are you referring to my
24: dog Becky? I'm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, three me, lunatics: me, <laughs> and Catherine and Becky the dog.
0: Does, despite the fact that it's your son and what seems a personal conversation, does a performer's instinct kick in when you know you're being recorded and other people are going to see it? <laughs>
4: I know what my husband's going to say. Go ahead, honey. I know exactly what you're going to say.
24: Absolutely. <laughs> we are entertainers at are at the heart of the matter here. And uh, my suggestion to anyone listening here, if you're having a little tension at home with your spouse, just ask anyone around to turn a camera on, and everybody's very nice to you. <laughs> you're, you're you're treated in ways you've just been longing for. You know.
4: <laughs> well, it's also Scott. At one point, I said to Gideon. You gotta show some reality here. Please show us with our usual daily annoyances and irritations with each other to keep it real. Which, you
20: know. we've gotten a handful of that, but when you guys are like really fighting, you don't really want me to try. No,
4: that's true. <laughs> so no. I, so I you've got the, the fighting light version. No, but,
20: but you have
24: to keep in mind, we uh, Gideon is in charge of the ball game. Nothing goes out without our okay, but uh, there is a thing called editing and editors, and Gideon is the editing editor, and um, he takes care of us.
0: I gotta ask you about munching on matzah and taking a pop culture quiz.
20: If you like it, you shoulda put a blank on it, Dad. If you you like it, you
24: shoulda put a hat on it.
20: Okay, and Mom, if you like it, you shoulda put a blank on it. Please fill the blank in. If you like it, you shoulda put a click on it. Okay, hat and click, very Mm -hmm. good. Next question. (laughs) We're one of those, right? No, it is, if you like it, you should have put a ring on it from Beyonce. If you like it, you should have put a ring on it. You are the
4: last two. Did I really think that anybody
20: would look at that? Would look at that, (laughs)
4: With, With Being seen stuffing my face with a... You know, stick of butter and matzah was not my ideal way of introducing myself to President Biden and other people, but
20: here we I, are. I, I think the real shock behind that video is that it had millions and millions of views, and we were not sent one complimentary box of matza. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. The
24: painful part about the matzah um, popularity to me even at this moment, as you bring it up, is I love it, and I love it with butter and salt, and it is not good for you. it is very fattening, and I want it twenty four seven and I hardly ever do it, and it just makes me long for it and people are always pointing to it, but we try to eat somewhat healthily. we fail yeah,
17: yeah,
20: why take this uh this show on the road well. I don't think any of us thought that it was taking the social media thing on the road so much as that there was sort of interest to have, you know, these interview evenings with my parents. Uh, And they did that and had done that a couple of times in the past and then thought this would maybe be a little funner for us if Gideon was there asking the questions. And I kind of said, I'm kind of too busy doing other stuff. And they said, you know, you get paid. And I said, oh, great. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah. May I, may
24: I uh, enter in? <laughs> I'm astounded that people, people choose to come to this because uh, we do nothing, Catherine and I, to prepare. We do no preparation whatsoever. We have no idea what Gideon's going to say or do or ask. And Gideon is someone who cannot be creating 24/7 365 who cannot that, be creating. Who, who cannot be creating yeah. that's what i said are you not listening
4: to yeah, me you.
24: so he always is is making stuff up and he really just says to us listen guys you have to do nothing to prepare just try not to hate each other before <laughs> <Yeah>. we start <laughs> and i'm incredibly very prepared. You know, we're theater rats, Catherine and me. That's where we were born, to be with an audience. you can work your whole life to put something wonderful together. If nobody comes to sit there and listen, it's for nothing. The audience makes the evening. And so that was, I think, consciously or unconsciously, a tremendous appeal for us to take the risk of seeing, can we go out completely unprepared in front of a group of people to see if anything happens. And there's a risk to that that I think we live for. It's very exciting.
0: With the onset of Valentine's Day, I have to ask some, some I don't want to call them serious questions, but eh, all right, serious questions. The first one, Mandy,
24: Yeah.
0: are you Inigo Montoya?
24: Am I Inigo Montoya? Let they- me put it this way. A lot of people say I look like him. They say I sound like him. I can do a very good imitation You've of You got
20: less hair than him.
24: I have much less hair than he had, but um, I do feel a kinship toward him and am unbelievably lucky. Even when you ask me this question, it never fails. I can't believe I'm the guy that got to be that guy. It's like, were you really the lion in The re- Wizard of Oz? Yep. <laughs> you know. You know.
0: You know, I, I mean, I really wanted to take advantage of this to hear the
24: line. but that's Oh, you all want right. to hear me do the line? Okay, here you go. And I, the way I normally do this, Scott, yeah. particularly to children, I yeah. just lean right into your ear. Because these kids can't believe that their mom and dad are saying, that's the guy. And I yeah. lean into their ear and I say, hello, my name is Yenigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And these little kids look at mom and dad going, well, he sounds like him, but he doesn't really look like him.
4: (laughs) I can tell you, Scott, the reason I believe that has resonated through generations at this point is that he is the depth of that guy. And the truth of what he wants back and can't get has spoken to so many people Man. And I think that is the essence of of Mandy's moral nature in some ways. Well, you
24: remind me of what I've, I discovered when I was in Philadelphia. I was on the bike and there was a TV thing on and the TV had Princess Bride on right near the end. And there's that moment when Robin jumps out of the window. I'm standing next to the man in black. She jumps out into Andre's arms and the man in black asks me if I'd like to be the next Dread Pirate Roberts and I say to him these lines that 36-year-old Mandy said and didn't really ever hear them until I was 50-something, and no one ever quotes them, and I think they are the unconscious and conscious greatest lines I'd ever heard that I didn't understand until I was in my 50s, which are these words. You know, I have been in the revenge business so long. Now that it's over, I do not know what to do with the rest of my life. And when you think about it, how revenge pushes the buttons of the horrors we are watching every second, every day, globally in our lives across this planet. Inigo Montoya did not get his father back by killing the six-fingered man. You do not get anything back from revenge. What keeps love going?
4: What keeps love going?
24: Tell him what Timmy and you were talking about, the guy in the other room. Oh, yeah.
4: <laughs> Years ago, when we were very young, mid-young, in our 30s, at one point, Mandy said, I guess I was talking too much, or she said, I just want you to be the body in the other room. And I was so offended. I thought, go get one of those Japanese blow-up dolls. You know, I'm not the body in the other room. And you know what, Scott, I said to this great friend and director of mine, Timothy Nair, the other day, I just said, you know what, Tim, what's really weird, I love being the body in the other room. <laughs> and I love having my husband of 45 years being the body in the other room. I love knowing all aspects of that body. I love the company of it. I love that we don't have to entertain each other. I know that we know we'll still be the bodies in the other room, even if we're driving each other nuts or not, and that we are brave enough to be quiet together, I guess, which used to not be acceptable to me at all. You guys are quiet together sometimes? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're not privy to that very much.
24: I, I think the power of love is uh, its indescribable. I guess poets have tried to write about it forever. It's the time that passes that mm-hmm. you can remember and that you can't remember, but you were there together. And I think it becomes overwhelming, and I know, Scott, you and I were born in 1952. We're damn near the exact same age, that you go like, wow, I'm 71, and this person's been with me for most of my adult life, or for whatever part of my life, and I haven't been alone, and I have a witness and someone to remember together with, and share with, and forget with, and live with. And I I I wish it for everyone. That wants it. That wants it. And it's you know, but I w but I'm not talking about marriage. Yeah. I'm talking about a, a friend, a yeah. partner. You know, just don't Com- be alone. Company. company. Period. Yeah. Yeah. Just just you know, if somebody says you want to get together and take a walk, or I need to I just need to do whatever. You know, just say yes. yes. I got I got a perfect example of why it's so great to just be with someone about a half hour before you called. Kath and I, we need to go to this carpet store to just pick out this carpet and, and make some decisions. And the guy called us and said, I'm available tomorrow. I'll be in your area. And I said, great, great. What time? We can't go tomorrow. We can't go tomorrow. What's the matter with you? I, don't sound I, like I that. said, what, what, what? I'm a pretty good imitator. Yeah. She said, "She nearly cut my head off. We can't go tomorrow. But the reason she said we can't go tomorrow and made me call the guy back and say, what's a good time for you is I said to him, listen, Chris. I said, we can't make it at that time in the morning because our grandson has been away with his parents on a a little trip visiting friends. And they're coming back, and we put up a swing set for him. And she said, are you not going to be there when he first sees the swing set? Are you not going to be there because you're putting carpet down? And I went, okay, okay, okay. And I explained that to Chris, the carpet guy, and he went, I totally get it. And he, I said, so can we play it by ear, Chris? And once we're done with the swing set, then I'll let you know when we're free. <laughs> you
4: know? Well, you get That's very wonderful. aware of the gifts of all these moments uh, as you get older because you don't know how many you'll have. It becomes not a you know, metaphorical idea, but it becomes very real. So,
0: so just one last question for Gideon. What have you learned from your parents about love, life?
20: There was definitely a time watching them, these two complicated people, struggle to be together and with themselves that I thought that, oh, maybe these two people shouldn't be together. And they kind of tried separating a long time ago when I was a teenager. They were really bad at being apart. They were they were terrible at being on their own. And so kind of by necessity, they kept working at it and kept trying. So while uh, it seems arduous, <laughs> um, even 45 years in, it's been amazing, especially these last couple of years, having a front row seat and, and getting to know them better as you know, friends and a couple. Yeah. Can I get a, a love song just to carry me through the day today? A love Ma? song to you? No, um, a love song between the two of you. Just about your undying love for each other and being married and how fun it is.
4: Oh, how fun it is to be married. Oh, Gideon
0: grody Patinkin will join his father, Mandy Patinkin, his mother, Catherine Grody, on stage <laughs> Valentine's Day at the Strathmore right outside of Washington, D.C., <laughs> And in and New no London, London, Connecticut, no in, in anywhere, April.
24: Anywhere you go, anywhere you look, no one in the world
4: Thank you all three of you for being with no us. What a I pleasure love, to be mom, able mom, to, mom, to have a conversation with you. She's
24: so explosive.
4: Everything He's I say, so everything motivated. I do, nothing happens.
0: This is weekend edition from NPR News. I'm Scott
6: Simon.
24: There's no one in the world I love like Ma. <laughs>
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 42 degrees in Boston. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is next at 10 o'clock.
19: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Thursdays at Harvard, with Liz Lerman's Messy Beginnings, making ideas public. Next Thursday at 6 at the Art Lab, harvard.edu slash arts thursdays. And the Umbrella Arts Center, presenting Broadway star Jeremy Jordan in an intimate concert tonight tickets at theumbrellaarts.org.
12: I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news
5: station.